If you want to spend less time going to the grocery store, then you need to check out ButcherBox. It's a super convenient way to find high-quality meat and seafood that you can trust. ButcherBox only sells 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, pork-raised, crate-free, and wild-caught seafood. And you know what all that means. No antibiotics or added hormones, so you get peace of mind that you're eating healthy food. On top of all that, ButcherBox makes shopping simpler because it gets delivered right to your doorstep. Shipping is always free, and you can customize your meal plan so you're only getting exactly what you want. We've tried everything from pork chops to tenderloins at our house, and they're always a huge hit. ButcherBox prices are as good or better than what you can find at the store, plus they have exclusive member deals, as well as a ton of recipes, cooking tips, and other kitchen hacks to choose from. So sign up at ButcherBox.com LISC and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer, plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. So sign up today at ButcherBox.com slash LISK, L-I-S-K, and use code LISK to choose your free-for-a-year offer, plus $20 off your first order. Mopac Audio. Thank you for joining us on this episode of LISK, Long Island Serial Killer, Today, we are talking with Mary Murphy. She's an investigative journalist of 40 years at PIX11 in New York. Mary has covered the Liz case from the very beginning. And now, after the arrest of Rex, the alleged killer, she's been digging into unsolved homicides that might have a connection to him. But over this episode, we cover everything related to the case, even some updates that happened just today on the day of this recording. So do you want to just jump in and kind of tell us who you are and kind of what you do? I'm Mary Murphy, and I've been an investigative reporter in New York City for the last 40 years, as of September 2023. Uh, I started out doing breaking news and sort of worked my way up the ranks um, from the five boroughs. I've worked a lot on Long Island, so I know Nassau and Suffolk very well. When the Gilgo Beach case happened, Uh, The discoveries were made in December 2010. It was late at night. I was watching the 10 o'clock news. One of my colleagues was on air, and I was shocked to hear about the bodies. And then next year, they found some more bodies, six more sets of remains. And when I really started to get involved was when Shannon Gilbert's belongings were found. I believe the date was December 7th of 2011. And it was a really damp day, not a pleasant day. And we were out near the Oak Beach Association and the former police commissioner, Richard Dormer, was there. And so was the initial chief of detectives on the case, Dominic Verone. And I'll always remember Richard Dormer saying if it was not for Shannon Gilbert's disappearance, we never probably would have found the other victims. So before the police found Shannon's remains, They found her cell phone. They found her bag. They found an item of clothing. What was interesting that day is that we met some of the people that were witnesses in the case. Gus Coletti, he was someone who lived within Oak Beach. Shannon Gilbert had banged on his door when she was making that frantic 911 call. And he actually opened the door and was trying to assist her. And then he said she ran away. And he recalled the car out on the street. And that was her driver. And Michael Pack, I know, was interviewed quite extensively by police. I was just recently told that Michael Pack, the driver for Shannon, and also Joe Brewer, who was the client, both of them 
passed lie detector tests. There are so many names that have been thrown around in this case, uh, but it was interesting for me to hear recently that Shannon's driver and Joe Brewer passed lie detector tests. Yeah. Well, and since you're talking about Shannon, that's great if we can just jump in there because, you know, she does get overlooked sometimes during this. And, um, but I think it's true, like, you know, her disappearance, as tragic as it is, did lead to what where we're at now. But let's talk about Shannon. Like, there's still those questions um, of what happened out there. And we all have our theories. What, what do you think, not anything that you'd report on necessarily, but what do you think happened if you had to just, you know, if someone begged you for an answer? I'm going to try to analyze this based on just what I've been told by law enforcement sources as someone who wasn't out there that night when she went missing. But it, what I'm hearing happened is that she got a call from a regular phone. It was not a burner phone. And Joe Brewer did not attempt to hide that he was the client. So what I'm hearing is that Michael Packer driver took her to the fairway on Oak Beach. She was at Joe Brewer's house. And in talking to someone who was a senior investigator on the case when this all happened, I just learned that she left the house, the Brewer house with Brewer for 15 to 20 minutes. So what happened at that time? You know, the rumor is, the talk is that she went to get drugs. So where did she get the drugs? Uh, all we know is that when that 911 call was made, uh, she sounded not only troubled and, and scared, but she sounded like perhaps she was under the influence of something. So there's that mystery of the 20 minutes of what happened. I know that investigators from different administrations over the last 13 years mostly seem to think that it was a tragic accident, that she went running because she felt under some kind of threat. Was that paranoia fueled by drugs or did something happen in the house when she said, they're trying to kill me? Um, the day that I went to cover the finding of her personal belongings, uh, I met another person who lives out near the marsh in Oak Beach, and he said how it was so mucky there. You know, you would just sink. And, you know, I know that senior investigators from the beginning have felt that it was just terrible luck that, you know, when she went running, frantic, whatever was fueling that, that frantic feeling that she uh, tragically may have just run into the wrong place. I mean, it's pretty deep in where she was found. It's not right on the edge of the marsh. I'm, of course, there are a lot of conspiracy theories. And, you know, I read a lot online because I like to hear what people are saying. Sometimes family members will write comments online, and that's how you find out where they're at in all of this. Um, but the, the investigators on the case think that it was a tragic death that was an accident. Yeah, and I, I tend to lean that way. You know, I try to be open-minded and, you know, when it comes to Long Island, you never know. But it does seem that that is the case. And what have you heard from them about, like, the actual cause of death? You know, because we've talked about that on one of our episodes where we looked at, could hypothermia have caused it? Um, it wasn't that cold. It was getting light. Um, have you heard from law enforcement what their official cause of death is, or do they have one? Initially, the cause of death was you know, speculated to be drowning. 
because there was water in the marsh at that time. After that, it was potential exposure to the elements, but I don't have an autopsy report in front of me. The family of Shannon Gilbert had hired someone, a former ME from New York City, Michael Bodden, and this was several years after she died. And he had said that it was possible homicide. You know, he said there was a little hole in her hyoid bone. And the hyoid bone is significant, not just in Shannon's case, but people are calling me now since the arrest of Rex Heuerman, and they're talking about other women that were found thrown at the side of a roadway, not in Gilgo Beach, but one case not far from Gilgo Beach. And, and they either had partial hyoid bone gone or a full hyoid bone missing. So that's something that's in your neck used for swallowing mm-hmm. and it assists in speaking. So you wonder why is the hyoid bone missing? We had talked to kind of a, an expert on hypothermia, and, and he's a you know an ER doctor, and he talked about drugs and you know just a party drug like let's say cocaine. You know, you usually wake up from that with kind of a hangover and and uh, you know thirsty, and you start the day. So it, it's you know it was like he thought it was hard to say drugs. It was hard to say the elements given the temperatures, but he did say you know like. According to Baden, the hyoid bone, like the horns of the hyoid bone were broken. And he's like, you know, that those that that doesn't just happen. So it is still a mystery. Um, I, you know, I don't think kind of what you were alluding to. It doesn't seem tied to Rex, but um, and it's probably most likely a tragic accident. But I just wanted to hear kind of where you were. And do you remember when you were out there when they found her belongings? There's been this this rumor that the belongings were in like great shape, like they were just set out there. Did you ever hear that? And did you ever confirm that or hear anything about the, the stat, the status of the belongings of Shannon? No, no, I, I didn't hear anything about the status of the belongings. I mean, I know the theory that's presented by Johnny Ray, who represents Shannon Gilbert's family is that, you know, the belongings were put out there long after she disappeared and that Shannon's body was put out there long after she vanished. You know, I can't say for sure what happened. I think the fact that she left Joe Brewer's house with him for 15 minutes to 20 minutes is something that we need some explanations for. Uh, Johnny Ray has pointed a lot of fingers at Dr. Peter Hackett, who lived on Oak Beach and called Shannon Gilbert's mother twice, I believe, a couple of days after she disappeared. And so people wonder, why did he call? Shannon's mother, who's now dead, said that he said he ran a home for wayward girls. Why did he call? You know, some have said that maybe he encountered Shannon Gilbert, that if she was having some kind of mental health episode, he gave her some drugs. Or was Joe Brewer seeking party drugs? We don't know the answers. The public doesn't know. Police may know a little more than we know, but, you know, right now those 20 minutes are unaccounted for. Yeah. And we had taken a hard look at those 20 minutes. You know, that was Michael Pack told us 15, 20 minutes. And, you know, we kind of did that, like, did they run into civilization, if you will, you know, across the bridge to to uh, uh, like a pharmacy? But even that, it takes 15 to 20 minutes just to get there, much less shop and get back. So it does make you wonder and um and hopefully you know i know there's 
there's a sister or two still with with Shannon, and I do hope they get some answers. And one thing I just want to point out, since we are talking about Shannon, this question comes up a lot when they talk about Hackett calling Mary Gilbert. And, you know, we had talked to Michael Pack and to Alex Diaz, her boyfriend at the time, and they both talked about giving their number to Hackett, who was kind of this, like, you know, he liked to be the sheriff, if you will, of Oak Beach. And that's one of those ways that they believe he got Mary's number. Because a lot of people want to point at that and say, there's no way he could have gotten Mary's number without running into Shannon. Well, it seems to have come later, according to Alex. And um, Right. And I also heard there was some kind of a flyer. Yes. I asked one of the senior investigators who was on the case in the beginning. And he told me that there was a flyer out in Oak Beach and Mary Gilbert's number was on the flyer. Yes. Yeah. So I, I hope listeners, you know, I still see that, you know, there's still rumors that swirl and hopefully that'll tamp some of that down. But people love their conspiracies and, um, you know, we can only do what we can do. But uh, and let me ask you this. I know you're from the five boroughs and all that, but can you give us a little just a little one minute primer on Long Island and what it's like and how big it is and and um, and why it seems it is kind of rife with some corruption and uh, it seems to be a hotbed for serial killers. I don't think I can tell you the reason why there are so many serial killers out on Long Island, but I can tell you that Suffolk County in particular, which is farther east from Nassau, that's a very expansive space and some of the homes are very far apart and the police department is considered large although it's nowhere near as large as the NYPD I believe there are 2,500 police officers in the Suffolk County Department I just get a sense that they want to run things their way out there they don't want any interference from the big shots to the west in New York City and the whole thing with the FBI being pushed out of the investigation, for a long time, people speculated it was because the former chief of department who ended up going to federal prison, that would be James Burke, the speculation was he was somehow involved with the Gilgo Beach serial killings. But I think what's emerging is that James Burke and his mentor, Tom Spoda, the former DA, they just didn't want any interference from anyone who wasn't part of their circle. I, I just think they didn't want anything that they were doing to come in, into the into the radar or into this the under the microscope of the FBI investigators. And because I know the FBI was involved in the first year, the initial chief of detectives on the case, Dominic Barone, told me that he dealt with the FBI. He dealt with the behavioral science unit. They had a profile they were developing on who the killer could be. And so for that first year, the FBI did help, helped with searching, helped with equipment. And then as soon as James Burke was named chief of department, you know, Dominic Verone lost his position as chief of detectives and, you know, Burke had his own circle and the FBI was not welcome. You know, that's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store. But did you know Shopify powers selling in person too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere. Online, in-store, on social media, and beyond. 
Shopify is your POS command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that unites your in-person and online sales into one seamless process. Easily track every sale across your business and know exactly what's in stock. Shopify helps you drive traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. You can take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify POS Go mobile device. Easy peasy. And if there's ever a question, Shopify's award-winning support is there to answer your questions. So sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash lisk, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash lisk to take your retail business to the next level today. One last time, go to shopify.com slash lisk. In the early days, you know, back when you were just starting to cover this, you know, there were a lot of rumors about, you know, Bissett, who was a big businessman out there. Of course, Burke. Uh, Bitroff became a name. Uh, it's still kind of a name for potentially some of yes, this. Yes, I've learned information about that today. Yes. Yeah. So what early days, what what were you following and what did you think as far as who it could be? In, in the early days, we were really stumped. So for the first year, there was a lot of coverage because the additional sets of remains were found in the spring of 2011. And then in the winter of 2011, a year after the first four were found, Shannon's belongings and then her remains showed up in the Oak Beach March. So there was a lot of coverage the first year. And then Chief Burke took over I think things kind of died down. We had Hurricane Sandy, Superstorm Sandy. So there was a lot of focus on the storm and all the damage it did on Long Island, as well as New Jersey, the five boroughs. So I think we got away a little bit from the Gilgo Beach investigation. And I don't think there was any big attempt to solve it from what we're hearing now. When yeah. I really got more involved was when Bitroff, John Bitroff, the carpenter, was arrested. And that was in the summer of 2014. And the press conference was called by Tom Spoda, the district attorney of Suffolk County. And they were very excited about the fact that the familial DNA was the way they nailed this cold case, actually two cold cases. So John Bitroff's brother had gone to prison briefly. He was convicted of criminal contempt. And in New York state, when you get convicted, you have to give your DNA. So the DNA was in the state database. And there was a hit to these two cold cases of women that were killed in the early 90s. And both of them were sex workers. There was a third worker that Bitroff was also tied to, but he ended up not being convicted or even tried for that case. But each of these women were found a month apart out in the woods, out in the Patchogue, Shirley, Manorville area. And that that really kind of triggered my interest in following the case much more than we had been. Uh, the, the first victim was Rita Tangretti. She was found in November of 1993. A month later, Sandra Castilla. And then the final victim that we know of Colleen McNamee, only 20 years old, was found in January of 1994. And, and what we came to learn was that the three women were posed in, in sexual positions 
And I later found out after conviction that all of the victims were missing their left shoe. So for a period, John Bitroff was referred to as the left shoe killer. Um, Bitroff was a married father of two, a carpenter. He only lived a few miles from where the victims were found. Um, and he was also a hunter. So, you know, and then these stories started emerging that he used to like to kill animals and once tore the heart out of an animal. And, you know, um, when we heard about him, that's when I really kickstarted the investigation, so to speak, on our end at PIX11 and asked to cover as much as I could of what was going on. Yeah. And with Bitroff, you know, there, I think there was an appeal or they, they're trying to appeal. Is there a status on where that's at? And are they going to try to put anything else on him? Or do you know any, anything on where yeah. that's at? Yes. Yes. So John Bitroff was sentenced in 2017 to 50 years to life in prison. And he's up near the Canadian border in the Clinton Correctional Facility. But there has been a legal challenge concerning how evidence was presented to the defense. The defense is entitled to discovery material. So the defense was trying to say that certain evidence was withheld or not handled properly. The DNA in the case, uh, apparently the expert that testified, perhaps he was being called into question. So um, there's some kind of an appeal going on or a challenge. What I heard just now in September is that Bitroff is going to be looked at more closely for two specific murders tied to Gilgo. Not saying he's been named as a leading suspect, but Bitroff is going to be looked at more closely relating to Valerie Mack and Jessica Taylor. Both of them were found in the Manorville Woods. Valerie Mack was found in 2000 and she was missing her skull and her arms and legs. And same with uh, Jessica, who was found three years later. I should say hands and legs, because I don't believe he fully dismembered uh, those two victims' bodies. Um, because Valerie Mack and Jessica Taylor were found in Manorville, just several miles from where John Bitroff lived, because he was a hunter and might know how to dismember victims. I'm, I'm told he's going to be looked at more closely, but I think that the investigators want to wait until some of these legal challenges with his initial convictions are taken care of. Well, that's, um, thanks for sharing that. And um, so that means then that somehow if, if he is responsible for those two, that partial remains of those two, Valerie and Jessica ended up along Ocean Parkway. Right, which would seem then like there could be two serial killers that were using that dumping ground, which it's not common, but I spoke to forensic psychiatrist, Dr. Park Dietz, uh, as soon as Rex Uerman was arrested, we did an interview and Dr. Dietz pointed out that while it's not common, it's not impossible that more than one serial killer would use a particular dumping ground. I think it's happened before. Yeah. Yeah. And it, you know, I've once Rex was, Rex was kind of named as the alleged uh, Long Island serial killer, Gilgo Beach. 
you know, I started looking at other areas where you would maybe dispose of victims. And it does, I mean, there are some, you know, some of the Wontog State Parkway, Parkway or the Meadowbrook State Parkway could be, you know, potential spots as they go kind of out to the outer islands. But yeah, it's hard to beat Ocean Parkway for, for um, you know, we've been out there and it just gets dark and quiet and you can see my, for miles. And so it does make a good spot that, you know, I could see a few psychos gravitating towards. Well, and then... Um, can you talk a little bit about just Burke and Spoda? And, you know, we kind of know how that relationship formed back with the Pius case. But why do you think, you know, was Burke so beholden to him that, you know, he helped him become a cop? He helped him rise through the ranks and he stayed faithful. Can what do you what do you attribute that that loyalty to with Spoda and Burke in that relationship? I mean, I don't know if they had any embarrassing information on each other. I, I cannot fathom why former DA Spoda made James Burke his chief of investigations for the district attorney's office, unless there was something, some perhaps some secret between them. I, I can't understand why that happened. If that was in New York City and the NYPD, if, if there was a candidate for a job, who had been investigated for being with prostitutes in his squad car and possibly doing drugs with them and not securing his gun. I do not think that person would get the top job as chief investigator for the district attorney's office. So I've always been baffled by how James Burke got that job. Yeah. I mean, not only was he chief investigator, he went on to become chief of police. He became chief of department for the Suffolk County Police Department. So those are two different agencies, but they're all connected. You know, the police department has to work with the DA's office to make cases. The police department develops the evidence. Yeah. So um, I'm I'm surmising that Tom Spoda definitely lobbied for uh, James Burke to get that job as chief of department. And then it would be the county executive who named him to that position. So it, there's, there's a lot going on in Suffolk County politics. And I'm not out there frequently enough to know all that goes on. But, you know, I've been part of this whole investigation and I've, I've observed a lot. And I just can't figure out how James Burke became chief of department for the Suffolk County Police Department. Yeah, I mean, and there are, there's other stuff that maybe is not as solid as an, you know, an internal affairs investigation, but he had so many check marks against him. Um, but yeah, he just kept rising. So it'll be interesting to see what more comes out from that, um, if anything does. But um, let me ask you this. One thing I just would like to, yeah. I, I wanted to go back to Bitroff just for a second because. The day that John Bitroff was arrested for the two cold case murders of sex workers from the early 90s, I went to the press conference that was held at the Suffolk County District Attorney's Office, and Tom Spoda was the DA who presided over that press conference. And I asked one of the first questions about whether these two murders could be tied to Gilgo. And I don't know, there was almost an air of contempt in his response. And he said, this, there is no evidentiary or investigative link to Gilgo. And then just three years later, one of his ADAs 
Robert Bancavilla, after John Bitroff was sentenced for those two murders, said that there were some murders at Gilgo that could be Bitroff's handiwork. So that was a direct contradiction of what his boss said three years earlier. I remember that when Bianca Villa came out with that. And, um, you know, we had all speculated that, you know, they're trying to wrap this all up. And, you know, it would make sense. Like, man, if we can pin it on him, I'm not saying it's ethical necessarily, but like if we can pin it all on Bitroff, we can get out, get out from under all these bodies that are on Ocean Parkway. So I was I was glad to see they just didn't settle on him because um, it doesn't seem like that was him for some most of, you know, some or most. But um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see when they dig back into that because um, it's hard to think, you know, he was just a, a two person killer, you know? No, um, no. The, um, the ADA in Suffolk County who prosecuted Fitchroff said he believes that he had killed more women. I've always been intrigued by the Atlantic City case and a possible connection. And I stress possible. Uh, because in Atlantic City, the four women who were sex workers that were killed, they were all placed in the same way on the ground with their heads facing east toward the boardwalk of Atlantic City, where the casinos are. And all four women were fully clothed, but they were all barefoot. So because of them being barefoot, it just made me think of the positioning of the women that Bitroff was convicted of killing in the early 90s. They had one shoe missing, the left shoe. So it almost seemed ritualistic. And no one has come out and said that Bitroff is tied to Atlantic City, although the Suffolk County Police Department has come out and said they, that investigators don't believe Rex Hewerman was tied to the Atlantic City murders. Thank you for joining us on this episode of LISC and a special thanks to Mary Murphy for giving us her time and for all the work she does. She is a tireless, incredible investigative journalist. And make sure to join us for episode two with our conversation of Mary where she covers some of these homicides that she's looked into that have gotten law enforcement looking back at these cases, wondering if they could be tied to Rex, whether it be in Long Island or South Carolina and beyond. This has been a Mopac Audio production. I am your host, Chris Moss. Our senior producer is Shannon McGarvey. Our executive producers are Jonathan Beal and Jonathan Nowazarden, and music by Blake Maples. The views, speculation, conjecture, and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers, guests, and the hosts. They do not reflect or represent the policy or views held by Mopac Audio LLC or any broadcaster of this podcast. Any and all suspects discussed on this podcast are considered innocent until guilt is established in a court of law and any allegations, speculation, opinion, or conjecture about any suspect is subject to such presumption of innocence.